Chapter 2 of Flaming Youth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mrs. L. Sid. Flaming Youth by Samuel Hopkins Adams. Chapter 2. The Fentress House stood high on a knoll overlooking the country club, which constituted Dorisdale's chief attraction as a suburb. Mona Fentress had built it with a legacy of $25,000 left to her just before Patricia's birth, and Ralph had put in the $15,000 necessary to complete the work after the architect's original estimate had been exhausted, leaving the place still unfinished by one wing, all the decorations, and most of the plumbing. The extra cost was due largely to the constantly altering schemes of Mona, she wished her house just so, and just so she finally had it from the little conservatory off the side hallway to the comfortable servant's suite on the third floor. If the result was, architecturally, a plate of hash, as Ralph called it, nevertheless the house was particularly easy to live in. To Mona Fentress belonged the credit for this. What she had of conscience was enlisted in her domestic economy. As Ralph Fentress's wife, she might be casually unfaithful. As mistress of his household, she was impeccable. The effortless seductiveness of her personality established its special atmosphere throughout the place. It made the servants her devoted and unwearying aids, and broadly speaking, a household is much what the servants make it. People gravitate naturally to a well-run place. Life seems so suave and easy there. Guests of all ages came and went at Holiday Knoll, mostly men. Mona cared little for women, and her own strong magnetism for men had been inherited by her two grown daughters. There was no special selectiveness about the company. All that was required of them was that they should be superficially presentable and contribute something of amusement or entertainment to the composite life of the menage. At least nine-tenths of them were making love to Constance, or Mary Delia, or Mona herself, openly or surreptitiously, as the case might be. It made a pleasantly restless and stimulating atmosphere. In the city itself there would have been criticism of the easy standards. Indeed, there was more or less which drifted out to the knoll. But judgments in the suburbs are kindlier, and Dorisdale is quite fashionable enough to establish its own standards. Any weekend would find half a dozen or more cars bunched on the driveway, having brought their quota of pleasure-seeking youth out from New York or from Philadelphia or Baltimore or Princeton. The girls had carte blanche, within reasonable limits, for invitations, which they were careful not to abuse. A few errors in judgment had reacted unpleasantly, not only upon themselves, but upon their undesirable guests. Mona Fentress could act with decision and dignity within her own walls. Her social discrimination was keen, if not rigid, and she possessed a blighting gift of sarcasm, mainly imitative, the most deadly kind used against the young. Neither of the girls was likely ever to forget her imitation of Connie's friend from Minneapolis, whose method of handling a fork, according to Mrs. Fentress's theory, had been derived from bayonet practice in camp nor her presentation of a steamship acquaintance of Dee's, who had too pathetically bewailed his losses at bridge. Partly from theory, partly as a trouble-saving device, 
the mother seldom attempted any exercise of direct authority upon the children a system of self-government was established or rather encouraged to grow into being it was ordained that each of the girls should have her own room to hold like a castle into which not even the parents might intrude unbidden and for which the occupant was held responsible constance's room was luxurious lazy filled with photographs mainly of groups in which her charming face was always central the special mark of mary delia's was its white and airy kempness patricia's was a mess of clothing and odds and ends tossed hither and thither and left to lie as they fell until a temporary access of orderliness inspired the child to clean up it suggested a room in which no window was opened at night ventress called it the hurrah's nest through this feminine environment he moved like a tolerant but semi-detached presiding genius his profession as consulting engineer took him early to the city and that or something else often kept him late being a considerate though rather selfish person he invariably telephoned when detained over dinner time which made the less difference in that there were always two or three men dropping in after golf hopeful of an invitation to stay harry mercer of the grant twins or sam gracie or one of the selfridges father or son envious mothers whispered that mrs fentress was trying to catch elmsley selfridge for constance and that it might not be as good a match as she supposed things weren't going any too well at the selfridge factory since the strike they also wondered acidly that ralph fentress was so easy as to let his pretty wife go about so much with steve selfridge who was almost old enough to be her father it was true but whose reputation was that of a decidedly unwithered age it would no more have occurred to fentress to raise objections over mona's going where she pleased with whom she pleased than it would have occurred to her to ask his permission all that was past long ago the outside member of the family was robert osterhout he lived nearby in a small studio bungalow where he conducted delicate and obscure experiments in the therapy of the ductless glands thrice a week he lectured at the university for he had already won a reputation in his own specialty having inherited a sufficient fortune he was letting his private practice dwindle to a point where presently the fentress family would be about all there was left of it into and out of the house on the knoll he wandered casual unobtrusive never in the way always welcome contributing a quiet solid background to the kaleidoscopic pattern of its existence in the most innocent of senses he was l'ami du maison if he was and had for years been in love with mona the fact never made a ripple in the affectionate friendliness of their relations nor in the outward placidity of his life it was accepted as part of the natural scheme of things ventress recognized it quite without resentment mona wondered at times whether constance and mary delia were not aware of it not that it would have made any difference she herself made little account of it yet she would sorely have missed the stable enduring inexpressive devotion had it lapsed bob was the intellectual outlet for her restless fervent exigent nature too complex to be satisfied with physical and emotional gratifications alone one could talk to bob god knows there were few enough others in her set with any understanding beyond the current chatter of the day after her sentence was pronounced she talked to him even more frankly than theretofore if ralph had died bob 
I'd probably have married you. Would you? What do you mean by that? That you wouldn't have married me? I'd probably have done as you wished. I always do. So you do, old dear. That's the reason I'd have married you. That and to keep you in the family where you belong. I'll keep myself in the family, Mona, if you want me there. But Ralph didn't die, she pursued. I'm going to instead. You can't marry Ralph. Not very well. But you might marry the girls. All of them. Connie, I think. She's most like me. She isn't nearly as pretty as you. Mona blew him a kiss. She's much, much prettier. Don't be so prejudiced. And she's very intelligent for twenty-two. About half my age. Oh, she'd catch up fast enough. She's quite mature. Much too attractive for an old husband, thank you. That way trouble lies, as you know. Thanks yourself. She thrust out her tongue at him in an impudent, childish grimace. Perhaps you'd prefer Mary Delia. I understand Dee better than I do Connie. Do you? It's more than I do. She's devilish frank about other people, but she never gives herself away. That's what I like about her. You really are quite chummy with her, aren't you? said the mother, looking at him curiously. But that's because you're so much older. She doesn't care much about men, really. She's unawakened. There's hot blood under that cool skin. I wonder what makes you think that. Oh, a medically trained man notices little things. So does a woman. But I haven't seen... Has Dee begun to awake? Oh, no. She's quite unaware of herself in that way. Very likely she won't until after she's married. After? Won't that be a little late? It's the first awakening a lot of women have. And a harsh one for some. What a lot of unpleasant things doctors know about life. Life's got its unpleasant phases. Particularly for women. Yet I'm glad I've been a woman. A little sensuous quiver passed over her tenderly mottled lips. She smiled, sighed, and reverted to her other thought. But you're going to have your hands full with the Fentresses. Really, you'd do better if you married one. Perhaps I shouldn't do as well. I might be too taken up with the one. She darted a glance at him, full of shrewd questioning with a touch of suspicion. You could care for Dee, she interpreted. I'd be more flattered if it were Connie. She pressed an electric button. To the trim maid who appeared, she said, Send Miss D here, please, Molly. What are you going to do, Mona? demanded Osterhout in some alarm, for he knew the devastating frankness with which she was wont to deal with those nearest her. Wait and see. There was a rhythmic, swift footfall on the stairs, the door was thrown open, and Mary Delia Fentress swung in upon them. Hello, mother, she said. Hail, Lord Roberts. What's the summons? Her bearing attested poise, careless self-confidence, and a brusque and ready good humor. She was tall, rounded, supple, browned, redolent of physical expression. At first sight, one knew that here was a girl whose body would exhale freshness, 
whose lips would be cool, whose breath would be sweet, whose voice would be even, whose senses and nerves would be controlled. A student of mankind might have appreciated in her the unafraid honesty and directness which so often go with a consciousness of physical strength in women as well as men. Her nickname in the family was Candida. She was not beautiful, not even pretty by strict standards, but there was about her a sort of careless splendor. Been playing golf? asked her mother. Yes, cantered in with a forty-seven. Nice going. How would you like to marry Bob? Neither the expression nor the attitude of the girl altered, but her cool and thoughtful eyes turned upon Osterhout. Has his lordship been making proposals for me? No, I haven't, barked the gentleman in the case. Watson, the straitjacket, he's growing violent. It was wholly my idea, proffered Mona. I thought Bob's was your special property. Why mark him down? It isn't bargain day. He's a fairly good bargain, though, pointed out her mother. Don't mind me if you want to discuss my good points, said Osterhout, lighting a cigarette and seating himself upon the window sill. I don't, said Mary Delia. Let's consider him as a market proposition. His age is against him. You're forty, aren't you, Bobs? He doesn't squirm, mother. That's a bad sign. Shows he's reached the age where he doesn't care. Or is it a good sign showing his self-control? Dee, I'd beat you if I married you. Her eyes lightened. Would you? I believe you'd try. With a bound, she was upon him. One arm crooked under his shoulder, the heel of the other fist, was thrust under his chin. Improved it, she panted. You'd have your work cut out. There was a quick shift, a blending of the two figures, and the slider was bent backward almost to the floor. Give up, demanded Osterhout, his face close above the laughing lips. Yes, Lord, you're quick. Thought I had you. Take your penalty and let me up. Ignoring the invitation, he set her in a chair and restored his deranged necktie. I'll apologize for the forty, said Dee. You're not so old and feeble. To resume, as we say when serious, you're homely as a scalded pup. Thank you. But it's a nice homely. You've got a lamb of a disposition and money enough, haven't you? Enough for me. How passionately he pleads his cause. You play a nasty round of golf, too. I mustn't forget that. But no, I don't think I would. Not even if you asked me. What's the obstacle, Dee? Well, for one thing, there's Jimmy James. What? Quite so, said the girl sedately. You're engaged to James? We haven't got that far yet, but I've got him on the run. Dee, expostulated her mother, laughing. Does he know of your honorable intentions? queried Osterhout. He hasn't expressed his own yet, but he will. When? Next time I kiss him. Next time, eh? How many times will that make? Haven't counted, Grandpa, mocked the girl. We haven't pulled many petting parties, though. Well, I'm good and be damned, muttered Osterhout. Modern stuff, Bob, remarked Mona. Being an ancient fossil, I'd say dangerous stuff with a fellow like Jameson James. Not with a girl like me, returned Dee with superb assurance. 
Believe me, I've got a hand on the emergency brake every minute. Osterhout, who had returned to his window seat, gave a sharp exclamation. What's the matter now? He rubbed his cheek growling. A hoarse, childish voice from below, which had in it some echo of Mona Fentress's lyric and alluring tones, served to answer the question. Where did I hit you, old Bobs? It's the scrub, said Dee. Don't you call me Bobs, you young devil. Oh, all right, Dr. Bobs. Come down. I've got a frightful gash in my knee. Well, don't show it to the world. I'll be there immediately. If you want to be the family benefactor, said Mary Delia as he was leaving. Mary Pat, nobody else ever will. You're a liar, came the hoarse voice from outside. There was a pause as for consideration. A stinking liar, it concluded with conviction. Pat, called her mother. Oh, very well, but I bet I'm married before I'm Dee's age, and to a better man than Jimmy James, he's a chaser. We've got to send that child away to school, said Mona Fentress in amused dismay as the door closed behind Osterhout. She's growing up any old way, and she seems to know everything that's going on. Dee, are you really going to marry Jimmy James? I think so. Any objections? Well, Ada Clare, you know. He's through with her. She's the kind that men don't get through with so easily. It's gone pretty far. It's gone the limit, probably. Well, I never thought Jimmy was president of the Purity League, mother. Do you really care for him, Dee? Of course I do. I don't mean that he gives me an awful thrill. Nobody does. Perhaps the right man would. Then I haven't seen him yet. Mother, she turned her cool regard upon Mona, tell me about it. About what? The thrill, the real thrill, you know. Mona's color deepened. You're a queer child, Dee. There are some things a woman has to find out for herself. Or get with some man to teach her, supplied the girl thoughtfully. The whole thing's mostly bluff, I think. Men are queer things. I could laugh my head off at Jimmy sometimes. That's a good safeguard. Yes, but I don't need it. Mother, aren't we going to pull a big party this spring? Of course, and we ought to do it pretty soon, too. What makes you say that so queerly? Nothing, answered Mona hastily. I was just thinking. For though she was up and about again, she knew that she was weakening under the heart attacks which she endured with silent fortitude, due partly to natural pride, partly to her belief that a complaining woman lost all charm for those about her, winning only the poor substitute of pity instead of admiration. Upon Dr. Osterhout she had imposed silence. She was determined that her household should know nothing, so long as concealment was possible. In her way, she was an unselfish woman. She was quite aware that this would be the last of her parties in the house on the knoll. Pat's voice floated upwards in tones of lamentation. Oh, damn it, Bobs! Go easy, can't you? That stuff's like fire! Patricia's fifteen reflected the mother. I'll enter her at the sisterhood school next fall. End of chapter 2